Okay, good morning, Gateway. It is great to see you on this beautiful fall morning. So glad you are here this morning. Our young adult life group is away on a camping trip this weekend, so if you see some of them missing today, they are out in the woods enjoying fellowship and Bible study together out there, so we want to keep praying for them. Just one announcement for us this morning before we do a scripture reading. I just want to remind you this afternoon at 4.30, we're having a missionary Q&A time with the Harper family. Lee and Laura Ashley were here two weeks ago, and you heard about their work with the International Mission Board in Belgium. Their work using a coffee bike and also her work going into the red light district to reach the women there with the gospel. And so they're going to do a Q&A this afternoon at 4.30 here in the sanctuary. There'll be coffee and light refreshments and a chance for you to hear a little bit more about their work and what they do. A chance for you to ask questions and us to pray over them as well. So I hope you guys will all be back this afternoon at 4.30 for a missions Q&A, coffee, and prayer time. I'm excited to have you guys and look forward to talking with you guys more this afternoon. Well, as we prepare our hearts for worship, can I ask you to stand, please? I want to read to us a scripture this morning. It's a familiar one because it's from 1 Peter, but 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 17. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. And that's what we want to sing about this morning, sing about our hope being in Christ and in Christ alone, the hope we have in the blood of Christ washing us from all of our sins, the hope that we have knowing that we belong to him and the hope that we have knowing that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we have eternal life awaiting us as well. We begin singing this morning a familiar song, Christ Our Hope in Life and Death. But after that, we're going to introduce two new songs to you that continue this theme of our hope in Christ. And so as we learn these new songs this morning, we want you to be thinking about eternity today, thinking about the hope that we have in Christ and calling us to look towards that day when we get to see Jesus face to face. So I want to pray for us and then we'll sing to the Lord together. Father, we are thankful that we have the privilege of singing to you together this morning, studying your word together this morning. Lord, thank you for the blessing of the church. This is your idea, and Lord, we're just grateful that you've drawn us to be part of it. So this morning, I pray that you would focus our minds on you. Lord, our minds are so easily distracted, and so many of us carry different burdens and distractions this morning. So I pray you'd help us lay those aside and focus on you and your beauty, your glory, your greatness this morning and respond to you and for all you've done as we celebrate your grace and your work in our lives. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing to the Lord together. Of Christ in which we stand. 
and that though we go through suffering here for a short time on this earth, we're almost home. Though we go through trials and tribulations, we're almost home. And if you're in Christ, our future glory is there with Christ, worshiping him around his throne and seeing him face to face. I just wanna read this passage from Revelation as we get ready to sing this. Revelation 22, uh, starting in verse one. Then the angel 
Show me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. With its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And skip down to verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end.
risen from the dead. He now reigns victorious. His kingdom knows no end. And through his resurrection, death has lost its hold. And I know on that final day, I'll rise as Jesus rose. And on that day, we will see you shining brighter than the sun on that day we will know you as we lift our voice as one till that day we will praise you for your never ending grace we will keep on singing on that glorious day Yeah. 
Just remain standing for a moment. Once you hear God's word in light of what we've just sung, let's think about everything being because of Christ, not because of us, our justification, our sanctification, our future glorification. Hear what Jesus said in John 15. He said, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. It may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Father, what glorious truths we have already proclaimed and song this morning. And Lord, thank you for the reminders from your word. Lord, what we've just sung is true. And as our confession this morning, Lord, we have no hope apart from you. Would you say so clearly in John 15, apart from you, we can do nothing. And we've just sung that back to you as a song of worship. Yet not I, but through Christ and me. Our only hope of forgiveness is in you. Our only hope of growth and godliness is in you. Our only hope of making a difference and pointing people to you and loving people is in you. There's nothing we bring except for our sin and our brokenness. And Lord, you're the one who justifies. You're the one who transforms. You're the one who will bring us home to glory. So thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have not in our own efforts, but in you and your goodness to us and your power and your wisdom and your transforming work as you make us into a people for your own glory. What an incredible truth that by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to me by disciples. And Lord, that is our desire this morning for you to produce in us that type of fruit we cannot make in ourselves. The fruit of a changed life, the fruit of a heart that loves the lost, the fruit of a life that desires to know you and your word and in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would grow that in us this week. That you would take the songs we've sung, the prayers we prayed, the scripture we're about to hear taught. You'd be using this to grow us more and more into fruit-bearing disciples for your glory and your glory alone. Father, we thank you for others who are taking the gospel to places around the world and right here in our own community. And we thank you for our friends down the street at Grace Presbyterian Church and Pastor Bill Thompson. We pray the very same thing for them this morning. We're praying for ourselves that where they would see you transforming them, they would see your power on display and their hope would be in you, not in themselves. So I pray you would encourage them as their word is being taught right now also this morning. Lord, we thank you for Jeff and Jennifer Hand and the ministry of Fisher's Farm and Lord, how they take the gospel to these brothers' lives and to help them see their need for Christ. It is not their own efforts that are transforming them, but it's you and you alone. Thank you for how the gospel is so clearly on display in their life and the lives of the guys from Fisher's Farm who are our dear friends. We just thank you for them and pray your blessings on them, both for the ministry and for the guys there and for those who work there. The word they find encouragement as they see the power of Christ transforming lives. We pray that would continue, continue to be bringing great glory to yourself as these brothers become fruit-bearing disciples and grow in what you're doing through them. Lord, we pray the same for around the world. Lord, we know that your heart is for all the nations to worship you. This is not just for Montgomery to follow you, but for all the nations to worship you as well. So Lord, we pray for the work being done in Kenya with Meskel's Children's Center of Hope. Thank you for our own Emily Griffin and the work she does to support that ministry. And Lord, we just pray that you would provide everything that ministry needs. 
as they take the gospel to the orphans there in Kenya, as they take the gospel to the kids in the school, as they take the gospel to the surrounding communities, Lord, that you would let that be a bright light where you would get much glory. And we see the fruit of evangelism and the fruit of discipleship happening there in Kenya. Thank you for that ministry and pray your blessings over it. Likewise, Lord, we thank you for Lee and Laura Ashley and their kids and their work in Belgium. Thank you for their creativity and the vision you've given them to use coffee as a bridge for the gospel, to be willing to step into the hard places of the red light districts, to take the gospel to these women in such brokenness. Lord, we thank you for their work and pray your blessings on it. We pray particularly as they're here for these weeks in the U.S. I pray this will be a time of great refreshment for them. We know it's a wearisome task they've been called to in a very lonely place where there's not much Christian community. So I pray these weeks here, they would be refreshed and built up with a renewed vision and renewed strength for all you're calling them to do when they go back. And we thank you for them and pray your blessings over them and their family. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to hear your word taught this morning. I thank you for Rick and his friendship and Lord, his faithfulness to your word. And I pray this morning, Lord, as he opens your word and continues our journey through first Peter, that you give him clarity of thoughts. You would give him the ability to communicate well, all that he's been studying and Lord, your word would be powerful and would transform us. Lord, as we look more at what it looks like to be aliens and strangers in this world, these sojourners and exiles on our way to our heavenly home, Lord, I pray you'd be growing us in how we respond to those around us. And so I pray that you, you use your word to stretch us this morning, conform us more to who you desire for us to be in Christ. And Lord, we'll give you all the praise for what you're gonna do. And we do ask that the Father would be glorified through what happens here this morning. And we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And first to fourth grade, you are dismissed to kids' worship. So first to fourth grade, you are dismissed out these double doors here to kids' worship. And parents, after the service is over, make sure you head to the blue hall in the gym to pick up your kids. First, I want to say, um, Justin, thank you, and the uh, worship team, uh, the music team. Um, what a, um, <laughs> my, my kids won't be surprised. You had me in tears and almost home. And I think that is because as I think of my own experience and my own um, loss, that I can't wait to see those I love in heaven, and I can't wait to see my Savior, Jesus. Um, as we sung these songs, we were reminded of Christ and who he is, and that's the goal this morning. So I know you've just got, you just sat down, um, but we're going to read um, our passage this morning from 1 Peter 2, and we're going to read verses 9 through 17. So I'm going to ask you to stand again uh, as we look at uh, 1 Peter 2, and we're going to actually start in verse 9 because I want to give us the kind of context as we look at this, this uh, passage this morning. So let's read, um, starting verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray. Father, this morning, after having sung what we have, we could probably leave here and just be reminded and be grateful for the gospel we've already heard. But Lord, we come now before your word, and your word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's going to do its work in our hearts this morning. So I pray, Lord, that you would take this word and apply it to our lives. Lord, I couldn't help but think about this idea of being sojourners and exiles. And I'm not sure this morning if some of us really feel that way. My hope is is that as we draw closer to you, we will feel that. That the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. I pray that this morning, God, that your word would go do its work in our hearts and lives. And may we rejoice in hearing it from it this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I kept asking the question. Our, our focus this morning is going to be on uh, verses 13 and 14. I kept asking the question... What is it that, that we need to hear in terms of this text, in terms of the context that uh, Paul, Peter is addressing? In the last couple of years, our nation has faced some of the most challenging times that I can remember in li- my lifetime. I'm 48 years old, and I don't know where everyone else is in that context. But as I thought about it, I thought, wow, a pandemic has swept across the world that changed the lives of millions of citizens. We lost millions across the world. A presidential election that caused massive upheaval among the electorate. And then a murder, a murder that led to riots and destruction of cities that we haven't really seen since the civil rights movements of the 60s. Now, I, as a, my background is in history. I love to read history, of course, the Bible's history. Um, But as we read history, we look at the larger scope, and we realize that none of this is new. What I'm trying to get at is this is something that we've experienced in the last couple years. And as we experience these things, my my curiosity is, what were were your thoughts? How did you process process that? Now, I believe that the text this morning speaks to the issue of really what was going on. And a lot of it, what we see in our culture is this idea, the spirit of anti-authoritarianism. This idea of we need to get things fixed, but we need to get it fixed my way. We need to do things this way. And unfortunately, because we live and breathe the air of this culture, all of us have been sucked into it. All of us have been sucked into it. It was no different in the early church. I think it's easy for us to read scriptures and and forget what was going on in the early church. We need the historical context. You see, the early church, those people were no different than us. What were they wanting? They were wanting things like security. They were wanting to raise their families in an environment where they had the freedom to worship and to do as they thought was right or what they wanted to do, maybe I could say as well. And yet, as we 
think about this text, the reality is their struggles, their sins are no different than ours today. None whatsoever. And as Peter writes this text, I think what he's going to do is he's doing the same thing to them as he's doing for us. And that is God has called Christians to submit to governing authorities which God has sovereignly established in order that the name of Christ might be magnified. And that was his, his, main, his main push here in verses 13, uh, excuse me, is that right? Yeah, 13 and 14, is this idea of, hey, I want you to remember, you are earthly citizens, and there's something that you need to do as, as citizens of God's kingdom, and that is to respond in a way that is biblical. As followers of Christ, all of us in this room have heard this time and time again. Our lives should look different from that of the world. Yes? Yes? Yeah. <laughs> you know, worship is back and forth here. Yes? We are to look different. We are to look different. This morning, as we look to the text, I'm confident that it will probably raise more questions than I can answer this morning. Because we're in a different context in terms of a democracy. And you're probably going to go, yeah, but what about? Yeah, but what about? Yeah, but what about? I understand that. There are difficult questions concerning to what extent should we be involved in the world? What does that look like politically? My goal here this morning is to explain the text and how the early church would have understood this command to be subject to governing authorities. And then apply it as I best I can to our current context. I also must do this. And I was thinking about this in terms of my own struggles. Brothers and sisters, the call to submit, the call to submit is hard. I, within me, I don't like people telling me what to do. Maybe I'm unique. I don't. And I will confess this morning that my thoughts and attitude toward what I see in the culture, and specifically in terms of politics and how it relates to justice and ethics, is often sinful anger. And that's why this morning I'm so grateful for the word of God because what it does is it comes into our lives and says, no, here's the corrective. I need a corrective every single day. And that's why we come to the text. Here's the context. And the context is, is, is dealing with the idea, I think, of suffering. It's being written by Peter, AD 6062, and there's an a emperor in charge at the time named Nero. Now, Nero doesn't quite yet get to the point of, we haven't gotten to the point where he's going to burn down Rome and blame Christians. But as we look at this text, I couldn't help but considering how suffering must have have shaped the early church's view of submission. Because suffering was so so much part of their life. As a matter of fact, in the text, we see this, this passage toward the end of Peter. And it says this. Early in the passage, just to give context, it starts in verse 8, but I start in verse 9 here. But in verse 8, he says, what? The devil is going about like a roaring lion, what? Seeking whom he can devour, right? That's what it says. And then he goes on and he says, resist the devil 
firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood what, throughout the world. And what I think he's referring to is the Roman world, the known world at that time. And then after he says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has, a, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, what, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And I think what Peter is saying there is, look, brothers and sisters, you will suffer. You have suffered. You will continue to suffer. But keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Because he's writing to a people who know what it is like to go through various trials, which has grieved them. And in 4.12, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials which, when, it comes, when it comes upon you to test you. And these comments suggest that the believers he is addressing have experienced and will continue to experience suffering. The audience is important because at the very beginning of, of, of Peter, he writes and he says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, the, what we would call the diaspora. And my understanding of that, there's, there's a number of understandings, but my understanding of that is many of the Christian Jews have left Jerusalem being pushed out because of persecution, and they are settling in what is today modern-day Turkey. And they're settling, and just think about, with, with just a minute, just think with me for a minute. How many of you like to up and move away from your family? How many of you, some of you say, I do, you don't know my family. Okay, I get it, I got it, okay. Um, how many of you like, we get comfortable though in the communities that we're in, correct? We like to be where we are. Well, these, these people up and they left and they're in new communities, communities that probably don't know Christ. Last week, Pastor Grady pointed out that in some ways the sojourner exile motive is a reality for all of us. Why? Because all of us are sojourners and pilgrims in this world. Why? Because we're moving, we belong to, first of all, the kingdom of heaven, and we're moving, as we sang this morning, in that direction. If we've been born again by the Spirit of God, brothers and sisters, we have new affections and new desires. The things of this world do grow strangely dim. We are no longer to love the things of this world. It tells us in 1 John, our first love is, should be Jesus Christ. But there is a physical reality for those who are receiving the letter. They know this, I think, internally. But because they have been dispersed, he is talking or speaking to Christians or writing to Christians who can't escape the hostility from the general Roman population. The early Christians stood out because they were unwilling to participate and the pagan religious customs that were celebrated by the Roman leaders. Christians said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to be involved in that system. And their willingness to resist these practices, we know from accounts, led to Christians being criticized and mocked and discriminated against and perhaps 
many, in some ways it did happen, they were brought in on trumped up charges before the court. That was the reality for the Christians in the Roman Empire. And Paul says, submit. Submit. If suffering due to persecution was the reality for these believers, then it would have shaped how they received this. Whatever the trials his readers were facing, Peter says, look, you are to submit to the governing authorities. Be subject, it says in 1 Peter 2, 13-14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And this passage begins a section that frames how we as Christians should conduct ourselves toward one another within the social roles of society. Why do you think that Peter goes from, you are sojourners, you are a nation of priests, and jumps right into this, this, this statement about government systems? I think there's two possible answers here. I think the first answer would be this. After having said to them that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God, his readers might have thought this. Hey, we belong to God. Why should we care what emperors or governors have to say? I mean, our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. What does that matter? And it might have been easy for the believers in the dispersion actually to become more what withdrawn or maybe even apathetic to the world around them due to their suffering. Remember, these are people who have very little, if any, kind of political influence. They probably had none. And when Peter uses that term, sojourners and exiles, it would have brought to their mind that, yes, this is very temporary. We are pilgrims, and there is a right response to that. My life is here is very temporary. We're going to die. I say that within... I say that because I don't think we live as if we're dying. We live in the culture that we're in as if this is a permanent place. It's not. It's not. Brothers and sisters, as they heard this word sojourners and exiles, their response might have said, look, we don't want to get involved in that. And yet Peter is actually saying, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I know you're sojourners and exiles, but you need to be salt and light. You have to be in the system. You have to be engaged. You have to bear witness. You have to stand for truth. You have to get out there and share the gospel and the love of Christ. So what is the purpose of government? That's the question I would ask. What would they have understood the purpose of government to be? What do we understand the purpose of government? Peter writes in verse 14 that government is ordained by God to what? Punish those who do evil and to praise those who what? Do good. Right? God has put into place human institutions such as government for what I call use the ethical term like human flourishing. Human flourishing. 
Government is supposed to be God's servant for good, as it says in Romans 13, 14. Furthermore, no matter what system of government is in place, Paul writes that it was ordained by God. That's huge. That's not a small matter. God puts in place government systems. But it does raise the question, right? What is evil and what is good? Nero didn't care about what was good. God designed government to protect the innocent and restrain the wicked in the Roman Empire, but Nero beheaded, beheaded Paul and crucified, uh, crucified Peter upside down. In other words, government often ignores what is evil and good. And yet we know that what God has designed for government is good. Here's what I would suggest to you. I want you to think about this for a minute. Although every government system is flawed, every government system is flawed, God puts in place government systems to restrain evil. I am grateful that we have laws. I'm grateful for the government structure that we actually live in, which has the three branches, right? The judicial, the legislative, the executive. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for how it was designed. But can I say something? That system is only as good as its people. And when the people fail and the people ignore God, the system will eventually not stand. It won't. And I think what the, the church, you know, as a, a United, here in the United States, the church in the United States, we're so worried about, oh, the political system, we've got to get the right people in place. Brothers and sisters, the problem is we're not dealing with the heart. You can have a facade, doesn't may mean it's going to change the system. I'm not arguing for not voting. I'm not. I'm not making that argument at all. I'm saying do your best, but don't put your hope and confidence in a system that will not last. I have no idea how long. I don't know what it's going to look like in the future. I don't, and you don't either. But I can say this. I would rather have a system that's in place that might be corrupt rather than living in a Somalia-like state. Somalia is anarchy, warlords. It's brutal. Government, governments, brothers and sisters, cannot save. But they do maintain a semblance of order. And the most oppressive governments hold evil in check to some extent. And for that, we should be grateful. But we also look at government and say, look, this will not change people's lives or hearts. Only the gospel could change the heart. Only the gospel. So he says, here's the government system. And then he says, be subject to. Let's talk about subjection for a minute. It's the same word for submission. And over the next few weeks, they're going to, you're going to see themes of submission from verses 213 to 3-7. What is submission? Here's how I define submission. Submission is the willingness to give honor and due obedience to those whom God has placed in authority. Say it again. Submission is the willingness to give honor and due obedience to those whom God has placed in authority. And this is a command. He says, be subject. It's an imperative. 
It is, is what we are called to do. And Peter opens his letter by reminding his readers and us that what? Yes, we are subject to, but also that what? The calling is a greater calling than the average citizen by, because why? We do it for the Lord's sake. Right? So sub submission here is rooted in our relationship to Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul, Peter goes back earlier and he says, we, are, we have been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers by the precious blood of Christ so that our, what, faith and hope are in who? God, right? And now that you have been born again, he tells them, you are, your lives are to reflect this character and this character is to be holiness, holiness, One Peter, First Peter, one sixteen. You shall be holy, for I am holy. What does holiness look like in relationship to authority? Submission. Say it again. Submission. We see submission throughout the entire Word of God, and we see throughout the entire Word of God people pushing back on. About a decade before Peter writes this letter, Paul writes to the Romans, right? And he says to them, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, hear this. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. It's a beautiful example in Paul's own life when he writes this. And it's found in Acts 23, 1 through 5. And I don't know if you know, remember the story in Acts 23. Paul has been arrested and he's brought before the council, probably the Sanhedrin. And so he's arrested at the temple, and he stands, he goes, and he stands before the council, and he begins to, get, begins to give a defense of his faith. He says, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, he makes the statement, and right as he says that, Ananias the high priest orders him to be struck in the mouth. Paul responds, whose fault? You know, you know what's coming, right? God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, with an explanation point. I would have loved to have been there for that one. He goes on to say, he says, Are you sitting to judge? Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck? But Paul's angry, and rightly so. But someone says, we don't know who it is, someone says, Would you revile God's high priest? The rebuke is right. The high priest is an authority figure in the Jewish system. Paul understands this, and Paul immediately responds, Brothers, I did not know that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I, I look at that and go, wow. Because if I had heard someone say, You know, he's the high priest, I would have said, I don't care if he's the high priest. That was unlawful. That's not what Paul does. Paul immediately submits and says, brothers, I had no idea. 
you're right, I shouldn't speak evil of the people. And Paul acknowledged his wrong response. But I think the last statement is most helpful to us. And it's found, and Paul pulls this from Exodus 22.8, you shall not revile God. And then it follows with, nor curse a ruler of your people. Why? Because rulers and authorities, whether good or bad, are sent to us by God. They are his instruments. Say it again. They are his instruments to do his bidding. And we are called to respond with submission. I know this is so contrary to our hearts. I get it. That's why I, I'm reading it going, yes, but. So the question is, is then why should we submit? We've already established one, right? Because it's God's will. Go- governing authorities are ordained by God. That's the first one, right? When Jesus stood before Pilate and Pilate asked Jesus, where are you from? What does Jesus do? He doesn't answer. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to what? Crucify you. Jesus responded, our Savior, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Authority is delegated by God to those he places in power. As we said earlier, authority is supposed to be good for the people, but brothers and sisters, there's times when that's not going to be the reality, and we have to figure out how do I submit in a context where it's not going to go well. And I would encourage you, if you want to know what that looks like, go look at the saints under former the USSR, the communist system. I would also encourage you to look at what's going on in China today. The believers who are actually living this out in a real way, You can't help but go through 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. Most of those leaders were wicked. And yet God calls us to honor the position and the person in authority. Why? Number two reason is because of our allegiance to the Lord. Our ultimate authority is not earthly in nature. Listen. We're grateful for the authorities we have, but it's not primarily human. Our submission to what God has established is rooted in our desire to obey our Savior, Jesus Christ. We honor the Lord when we submit to others. Submission in Roman Empire was a sign of weakness. It's not much different today. Our society also looks at submission as a form of weakness. Why? Because our society, what do we do? We elevate individualism. And often individualism is, is often exemplified by those people that what? We don't follow the rules or maybe being different. But as Christians, we are called to submit to Christ, which means we are called to obey him, believe in him, trust in him, obey him. Some have defined, some scholars have defined submit as deference or respect But Peter doesn't do that because he uses the same word for subject or submit as obey, as we will see in 1 Peter 3, 5 through 6. God has commanded us to obey those authority. As long as it's when, I know, you're, 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 
ahead of me probably because some of you think, yeah, but what about if it, it defiles the, the law or defiles my conscience? My question to you is, I would not disagree in terms of if, if something that was contrary to God's word, but I don't think we typically live in that world. It's usually a preference issue. It is. I wear the uniform. I've had many discussions in the last year and a half about what it looks like to submit. It's a hard one. I get it. I'm not making light of it. I'm saying we sometimes have to wrestle through that. But the question I have is, what is the first inclination the first inclination should be, how do I honor the Lord in this? And typically, that's not the first inclination of the heart. The first inclination of the heart typically is what? I don't like this. Stop. You might not. But I want to know what's going on in the heart when you're saying, I want to submit to Christ. And how does that play out now in my relationship with those who are in Authority. Willing obedience should be an attitude of believers. Willing obedience should be the attitude of believers toward those in authority. Why? Because we're ultimately obeying Jesus Christ, our Lord, who put them in place. Finally, I'm just going to touch on this. It's really clear, not a whole lot to say, but it's found in verse 15. Verse 15 says this, and Pastor Grady is going to carry this on next week, but it question becomes, I think it's connected to verses 13 and 14, but it says, for this is the will of God. Now, you can go forward with that in that text, and that by doing good, you should put to silence. However, you can also connect it to the preceding verse, which says you ought to submit because why? This is the will of God. Now, if you see a text where it says this is the will of God, it doesn't get much clearer than that. It doesn't. So this is the will of God. It is the will of God that you submit to those who are in authority. Finally, I want to give you one last, one last reason why I think we should submit to authority, and it's found outside the, outside the text here. If you were to look anywhere in Scripture and ask the question, where would I find, what does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Where would you go? Now, that's rhetorical, I know. I kind of want to teach here, but I'll just... You would probably go to the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus, as he's teaching, he says, this is what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of what? Heaven. Okay? So, so Jesus says, here, here we are... We, you, if you want to know what it looks like to be a citizen in God's kingdom, here is the answer. And it's found in, in Matthew 5 through 7. But after Jesus comes off the Beatitudes, it's real close connected here. He goes to the Beatitudes, which you're familiar with. The first Beatitude, by the way, I think is really crucial to this text, which I didn't bring in, but I probably could right now. Um, and that is what? That blessed are the poor in for theirs is of, oh, thank you, <laughs> get there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What is that? That's humility. It's brokenness. 
before God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But then he follows that through and he talks about the heart attitude. The heart, heart, heart. It's all heart. This is all heart. And he gets to the end of that and he says in, in, in Matthew 5, look over here in your past, in your, I don't know if I put it up there or not. I don't think I did. But look over at Matthew chapter 5 in your Bibles. And I want you to see this because he ends it this way toward the, toward the last part of the blessed. He goes right into the verses 13 through 16 and what does he say? He says this, you are the salt of the earth. But if a salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your, and you're all familiar with this verse, right? Let your light shine before others so that when they see your good works, they may what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As I was thinking about this text, I thought, wait a minute, that, that's it. That's it. If, if my life in the context of suffering, in the context of a system that is sinful and often broken, and I'm still willing to submit to Christ, and it's evident through my relationship to those in power, and my love for them and my desire to submit, guess what's happening? My light is shining. I would even suggest to you, because there's, and we we don't have to get too much into this, Jesus the salt and light illustration, salt does what? It preserves and gives flavor, right? I don't think you have to choose between those two. But we, at God's places in this nation, we act as a preservative. Do you ever think about that? If you're in Christ, you love Christ, and you're worshiping Christ, you, as you engage with others, are acting as a preservative in the system and in the culture. And then you're giving some flavor. What? They're saying, wait, wait, wait. These people are different. These people are not like the rest of the people. They, they, don't, they don't go out and riot. They don't seek to do change systems based on human means. You know what they do? They actually, they're always praying. What's this praying thing all about? Why are they praying all the time? Because we know who's sovereign over. God will change the system. God will do his work. We pray, we wait, we trust. And then light, what does light do? Similar to salt, right, in terms of flavor. Light illumines, what what does it illumine? It illumines the truth of God's word and who he is. And we love Christ, guess what's happening? The truth of Christ shines through us so that we illumine who who he is and what he's calling us to. So I see that in terms of our allegiance to Christ and our love for him, that we will be salt and light in this context, which means we can't separate, we can't withdraw, we engage the world that God has put placed us in. So what, do we, what happens when, we, when government doesn't punish evil? What happens when it doesn't praise those who do good? My firm answer to that is this. We pray. Why? 1 Timothy 1 Paul says to Timothy, first of all, or excuse me, two. First Timothy chapter two, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, 
and all who are in high positions that we may lead a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That text says we don't riot, we don't protest, we don't rebel, we pray. That's what it says. That's what the text says. And you say, well, what does submission look like in a democracy? Well, I told you I'm grateful for the democracy that we're in. Brothers and sisters, the judicial system and the systems that we have in place, the laws that are passed, we look at that and we say, as long as it's within the context of God's word, I'll do that. But if it calls me to reject Christ or reject truth or to not preach the word as they were told to do in Acts, then I must submit to what the higher authority, which is God himself. So what's the application? Three things. Number one, we are called to honor those in authority, whether you agree with them or not. I say this as someone who loves the word. I do. And I'll tell you, I was thinking about this because I was listening to John Piper recently when he preached a sermon back in 1994, I think it was. And he said something, I was like, yes, that's right. How does a pro-life Christian honor a pro-choice president? How does a Christian who loves God's purpose for marriage between a man and a woman honor those in authority who disdain this truth? First of all, I think there's one application here, and it's in the application is this. I'm not going to let biting cynicism capture my heart. I'm not going to let hostility and bitterness go in that direction. What I'm going to do is I'm going to look at Christ and I'm going to say, God, you have a purpose and plan in all of this. I don't know what it is, but I trust you. I trust you. Doesn't mean I don't, doesn't mean I'm not engaged. Doesn't mean when people around me having conversations, but what I want to do with those conversations is not bring them to political conversation. I want to bring them to what? The word of God and truth. So honor those in authority, even when you disagree, and you work through that and ask God to give you a heart to love those who may be, who need Christ ultimately. Number two, as I think it's a very practical application, be careful what you consume through media. If you spend more time on TV and doing media and all that and more than this in this word, you, you're, you're not, this is not going to help you. I'm concerned because our young people and maybe some of you who are older maybe, that you continually consume the culture of anti-authoritarian rebellion and spend hours immersed in political satire, which is only feeding your flesh. I don't have a problem saying that. Why? Because I'm concerned about your, your soul. I am. I want a church. We need a, we a church, a people of God who are consumed with the word of God, not the culture. I mean, is that, I mean, should that be the normal expectation of every Christian? Yes. It should, because the problem we have is that we don't guard our hearts if we're filling it with stuff we shouldn't be filling it with. There's no way you can spend Saturday night watching fill-in-the-blank 
that, that just deads your soul and come up Sunday morning to worship. And you want to know, why is this exciting? Well, that's because you spent last night deadening your soul to truth, not feeding on the Word of God. That, that, that's what I want to encourage you toward. That's what I want to just push you toward. Be in the Word. Be in the truth. Then guess what you can do? You can talk about those verses. You can talk about the Word and then ask the question, well, how does that apply to this situation or this circumstance? Instead of asking the political questions and the other secular questions to figure out how they apply to your life, ask the biblical questions and how they apply to life. But I'm concerned because I think that we are consumers of a lot of things that are deadening in our hearts to the word of God. And it's true. Finally, one thing, and that's what we sang this morning. I, again, when I sent the songs to Justin, he goes, you know, you have two that are brand new. I said, I know. Why? Here's why I wanted to sing what we sang this morning. And the reason I was in tears is because we have to have an eternal mindset. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated. We sang almost home. We sang on that day. We're going to close with turn your eyes upon Jesus because we desperately need to have an eternal perspective. We need the word of God to fill us. All we see around us, brothers and sisters, is passing away. There's going to come, Jesus is going to come one day and it's going to be a permanent system. Jesus Christ, King and Lord for all of eternity. All this other stuff, it's going away. This is why it's so hard sometimes in the military system as we think about external threats. And I keep going, no, 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 wait a minute. It's really not an external threat. It's an internal threat. Is it? I mean, seriously, think about that for a minute. It's not the external. It's this, this heart. That's what I got to work I need an eternal view of the grandeur and the glory of Jesus Christ. I need to sing about songs that remind me of the day when Christ will return and I will see him face to face. I need, you need that same perspective as you walk out today into that world that you have a perspective that says, you know what, I'm grateful for all that God has given me. I, I'm grateful for the home I have. I'm grateful for the family I have. I'm grateful I can go out to eat. I'm grateful I have a job. But these things pale in comparison to what it awaits me and that is to be with my Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we need. So that what? We can say, I'll submit, because why? The Lord is my authority. He is my all. Father, thank you for your word and for your truth. Lord, I pray that you would help us to apply. Maybe there's other applications here that I have not seen, but I pray that you'd help us to apply them to our lives. That, Lord, our first and foremost desire would be to love you, to be submitted to you in your kingdom to know the gospel, to know that you, Jesus, came and died. Died a death that I deserved in order that I might have life in Christ. And that, Lord, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, Father, when we do that, everything changes. Everything changes. Because now we have made you Lord of our lives and we want to submit to your authority and we want to submit to your word and your truth. And I pray that that would be the reality for all of us. 
Lord, as we sing now this song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Pray that you would speak to our hearts and encourage us as we look to the things that are above. In Christ's name.
every tongue will confess that you are Lord. All rulers, all authority will bow the knee. I pray, Lord, that that would be the truth of our own lives today, that we would bow the knee, that we would leave this place glorying in you and your truth and your word. Bless us this week as we go out. May we be a witness for your name's sake. May the gospel be on our lips. And may your name be exalted among the nations. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Here it is.